Welcome to the podcast, From Crisis to Connection. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'll be bringing the professional perspective. I'm Jody Stewart, unlicensed wife, mother, daughter, sister, friend, and neighbor, and I'll be bringing the regular everyday perspective. We are all about relationship recovery, and we'll tackle tough topics like infidelity, abuse, addiction, pornography, and betrayal trauma. We also focus on helping you build stronger connections in your most important relationships. So thanks for joining us. We're glad you're here. Welcome back, everyone. If you've been betrayed in your relationship or you're the one that broke the trust, it's very easy to get confused and wonder where you're supposed to start. I've created a free resource called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust that I'd love to share with you. It's an online video course that walks you through the initial steps of rebuilding trust. So today we're going to talk about food and everything that goes along with it. And our audience, of course, is dealing with a lot of betrayal, especially sexual betrayal. And so in my experience, after working with people in therapy for 23 plus years, food and sex seem to have a lot of parallels in terms of you know, drives and needing to, you know, trying to manage it and deal with it. And, and so I think that food is something that we can learn a lot about one, and it really teaches us a lot about the other in terms of appetites and shame and self-talk and relationship and everything. So I think this can be a really great discussion because yeah. food is something we have to confront every single day and uh, way more so than sex, I think. so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's actually interesting you say that because I've spent a lot of time thinking about if we do anything more often than eat. And I don't think we do. If anyone has any ideas, I, the only thing I've come up with is like a new mom changing diapers. But other than that, <laughs> I think we eat more often than we do anything else. Do and so we, yeah. we come up against food quite a bit. And that can bring up a lot of stuff for us. And it's also interesting that you draw that parallel between food and sex, because I often say that the way we do food is the way we do life. So often how you approach food is very often how you approach other areas of your life. So controlling, lack of flexibility, lack of variety, maybe chaotic or haphazard, unpredictable. I have worked with enough people to know that their personality really shines through with food in a lot of ways. And it can, I think, give you a lot of insight into maybe other areas of your life as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, just that alone wow. is really, really insightful. Yeah. And you'll have to, you know, probably just kind of roll with me here because I'm, I'm just going to be making so many parallels because, again, so much of our audience are trying to deal with sexually compulsive issues or sexual betrayal. But food, food is something that I've seen a lot of, a lot of guys that I work with, especially over the years, as soon as they get their pornography issue under control, as they see it, all of a sudden they start overeating. Mm -hmm. It's it's like there's just such a strong connection between, you know, numbing and and checking out, and like you said, the chaos, the inflexibility, things like that. And so I think understanding our own relationship to ourselves, our emotions, and stuff like that, and food and sex are sort of a doorway into really understanding ourselves more deeply. And then, yeah, and I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but I, I'd also in in this time together, would love to talk about how it impacts our relationships. Jody, you had a yeah. point this morning, we were talking about that. Yeah. We are curious how unhealthy behaviors and patterns in regard to food and eating, how that, how you have noticed some correlations between that and unhealthy patterns in human relationships. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. 
especially because I don't know that anyone necessarily uses this language to describe how they interact with food. But I would definitely say that we have a relationship with food, whether you know it or not, you're in a relationship with food. And and that's in large part because like we talked about, you're eating really frequently. And so you're bound to care a lot about it and have a lot of thoughts about it and feelings about it and maybe opinions about it. And maybe even want to avoid it or feel uncomfortable with it or love it and look forward to it. Whatever it is, you have a relationship with food. And as in other relationships, I think that relationship can ebb and flow in maybe just seasons of life or what the day looks like, what your schedule looks like, what you have time for, what's available to you. But ultimately, you do have a relationship with food. And I think the more you can think about it that way, you know, that you're actually developing or cultivating or maintaining this ideally healthy relationship with food, the better off you'll be because it kind of takes the same intention and awareness and respect and all of these other words we use to maybe describe a relationship with a person. You really need that with food. And I think it can feel sometimes uncomfortable for people to think about it that way because food should just be food, right? Like I'm in charge of it and it shouldn't have a say or I don't have to think that much about it or I don't want to think that much about it. But the reality is, is that you are in a relationship with food. And the more you can think about it that way, the more you can cultivate a relationship that's truly positive or supportive of your health and well-being, because it is very possible to develop pretty extreme behaviors with food, especially due to the, the culture we live in, right? That kind of, I don't think that actually many people learn about nutrition in healthy ways. I think we're really taught to approach nutrition and health through extremes because of the culture we live in that kind of glamorizes restriction or shames overeating, for example. And so we have these really dichotomous approaches to food. And we're never really, I think, taught or in a lot of cases, we aren't seen it modeled you know, a middle ground, a healthy, just middle ground relationship with food away from those extremes. Yeah. I mean, I think about when you talk about a relationship with food in terms of defining what that really is, I think of all the ways that I've related to food. I mean, we, we, we have the common term comfort food, where mm-hmm. we turn to food as something or as an entity or something that will extend comfort to us like we would a person. And then you said like, we, we can get into avoidance patterns or obsessive patterns. And these are probably reflected, like you said, in a lot of our attachment styles. And, you know, I think about my own experiences with food and relationships, and I see a lot of parallels in terms of controlling, withholding, Mm -hmm. restricting, things like that. In terms of our relationships to food, I'm guessing, Emily, would you say that these relationships start probably forming around the same time we're we're bonding and forming other relationships as children, as infants? Yeah. When you brought up attachment styles, that's exactly what I thought about, right? So, you kind of think about an infant, for example, and how they, how integral food is, or, you know, them getting their needs met with nutrition is to attaching to the caretaker, right? They let their caretaker know that they're ready for food. And ideally that need is met over and over and over again, or when they're done with food, that that is respected, right? They show clear signs that, that they're done, like moving away, not rooting anymore, whatever, And so absolutely. And I would say that most adults I I work with that have disordered eating or an unhealthy relationship with food can really trace their 
adult experiences back to a lot of their childhood eating experiences or feeding experiences with, with their caretaker. Whether as young as they can remember, mm-hmm. maybe they were put on a diet. Maybe food was kind of manipulated or controlled. They weren't allowed to have as much as they really wanted to. Or it was hidden or restricted in some way. Or there was no structure. It was like the kitchen was a revolving door and they could come in and out of the kitchen whenever they wanted to. And so they learned to relate to food in really extreme ways during those really formative years of childhood. And that's what I mean by not having that be modeled, right? Because that's a lot of where we take our cues from in our relationships in general, probably. You could speak to that better than I could, but I would definitely say that with food, where you take a lot of your cues on how to navigate food by what's modeled to you by your parents or caretakers, and, or even just the structure that they created for you in that regard. And more often than not, there's some missing pieces there for those who struggle later with disordered eating, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So so as we're starting to really think about the connection between the way we show up in relationships and our relationship with food, I imagine that, I mean, for a lot of people, this is going to be an aha. For me, it is mm-hmm. that what a close connection it is there. And I'm starting to wonder, so... First of all, how do I identify or how do I begin exploring what I'm seeing myself do with food in mm-hmm. a way that that isn't shaming or restrictive, that doesn't push me to the polarized edges? How can we begin to just start having an awareness around our habits and patterns and start to see some things? What would you suggest? So, I think that there's a lot that goes into this conversation because clearly someone's behaviors in and of themselves aren't necessarily problematic. A lot of times we want to check intentions when it comes to disordered eating. And, you know, it works for one person is different for another. And there's a lot of individuality in nutrition in general. However, kind of building off this conversation of childhood eating experiences, ideally what parents do for kids is exactly what we would want to do for ourselves as, as adults. Like we're parenting ourselves as adults, right? And so even if you maybe had negative childhood feeding experiences, you can give yourself what you need now by kind of reflecting back on maybe what you needed then. And most really what kids need is a flexible structure. They need a lot of freedom and flexibility to be able to decide what they like and explore food and interact with food in really curious ways that, you know, allow some freedom in that. And they, they need to be able to have space to do that and have that flexibility, explore food preferences and not feel shamed for what they like and, and those types of things. But they also need structure. They need to know that there's regular meals and snacks coming and ideally that they're not having a lot to eat between meals and snacks. So they learn to get adequate nutrition at a meal to get enough to fuel the next few hours so they can go live their life for a few hours. And then they come back and they take care of themselves with food, and then they leave and they go live their life for a few hours not thinking about food. And that's really what we want. What I think in a lot of ways I describe a healthy relationship with food is you think about food when it's time to think about food and you've anticipated your your needs enough to, to have food available and ready for you to be able to eat and you take care of yourself in that way to then be able to push away from the table and go live your life for a few hours, not needing to think about food again for a while, because you have the physical and mental energy to focus on other things that are more important to you. And so as you know, I work with majority of the people I work with are adults. 
that struggle with disordered eating. And so what I like to help them do is develop that same kind of flexible structure as an adult, like they would have had as a child. And it's interesting to say that though, because, you know, majority, obviously my clients are, are well aware that they have disordered eating. There might be some of your listeners that don't know that they do, or just don't necessarily relate to that description. Like, I don't, I don't know that they're necessarily disordered, but what I will say is competent eater has a flexible structure in place, whether they know it or not, whether they're hyper aware of it, whether they have to think a lot about it, or maybe it's just second nature to them. But competent eating skills would require that you are prepared with food and that you have regular access to food and you're eating on a consistent, regular basis. Let me describe a flexible structure logistically. I think that could be helpful. So Mm -hmm. flexible structure would look like eating three meals and two to three snacks. Most of us will probably fall in line with needing that kind of nourishment throughout the day. So a meal really shouldn't, you can't expect a meal to last longer than about three to four hours at the most. Hmm. A meal ideally would be composed of three to five food groups and you eat to fullness, like fullness and satisfaction. And that should be adequate fuel to go live your life for three or four hours and not really need to think about food. Now, if meals are longer than three to four hours apart, you're going to need a snack. I would say that vast majority of adults usually red line throughout their day, right? They maybe eat breakfast and then they kind of just get started on their day and they don't really think about needing food. But again, competent eating would be, okay, I'm noting that I ate breakfast at eight o'clock. I need to check in with myself around 11 or 12 because I really can't expect breakfast to last me longer than three to four hours. And that's just physiology. Like the way that our bodies and our brains work, we need to have regular nourishment throughout our day. So around 11 or 12, they make that mental note to check back in with themselves. And maybe they eat lunch then. Maybe they have a snack and they wait an hour or two to eat eat lunch. But a snack really should not... You can't expect a snack to last longer than an hour or two. And a snack ideally would have one to two food groups or so, maybe three, depending on the person, one to three food groups. But that's not going to last longer than an hour or two, right? So then you make that mental note. I need to check in with myself in an hour or two and make sure that I have lunch. Now, again, this is why even going back to that first idea that we kind of talked about, you do, you, you eat more often than you do anything else during the day, or you should eat more often, right? And so you're going to come up against this a lot. So ideally you're prepared. You've anticipated your needs ahead of time. So you've done some meal planning, you have things available that you can easily grab or easily prepare, especially in the middle of a busy day. So it doesn't just lead to, oh, I was busy and I just didn't eat. My clients, I don't accept that excuse. Like they struggle with eating disorders and disordered eating. I don't really accept the excuse of, I was just busy and I forgot to eat. It really has to be non-negotiable for our overall health and well-being and just basic good nutrition hygiene and self-care. You can't just forget to eat because you're busy. And so even if you forget to eat because you're busy, it doesn't mean that you didn't need food. And you're going to see ramifications of not taking care of yourself with food. You're going to get foggy headed. You're going to lack attention. You're going to get irritable. That's going to play out in other relationships, kind of uh, along with what we've been talking about. That's going to have ramifications on you in other areas of your life if you're not taking care of yourself with food first. And I think food can be a really great teacher in that way that we cannot just start our day and not think about what we need. 
we have to have regular mm, yeah. intervals throughout the day where we're taking time to connect with ourselves. And, you know, mealtimes could even be a good time to say, okay, where am I emotionally? Where am I at schedule-wise? What's my time management like? I mean, they, they can be even an opportunity to connect with yourself, like what you need outside of just food. But food can be that opportunity because you do need to take breaks regularly to eat, an opportunity yeah. to connect with yourself and see where you're at in the day and maybe any changes you need to make or just the ability to have some awareness. But that would be the flexible structure. And in so many ways, establishing a flexible structure with food pays off in so many other areas of our life because we're taking care of ourselves regularly throughout the day. Hopefully that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Oh, so much there. Yeah. yeah so there's much there. So much there. Well, I just love that concept that like food brings us back to ourselves every single day, yeah. multiple times a day to check in. I mean, I, I think one thing that Jody, you've tried to implement a lot in our family and something I struggle with, I tend to graze and eat on the go and just want to keep moving. Mm -hmm. And you're very deliberate about like, no, let's prepare our food. Let's sit down. Let's taste it. Let's like feel something. Let's connect <laughs> as a family. Let's, even if it's just the two of us at home and we're mm -hmm. on a busy Saturday, like I love how you'll even just say, let's make a, a plate out of a paper napkin. <laughs> or paper towel and, and we'll put the cheese and crackers on there and we'll sit down together and like have a moment and just really kind of check in with ourselves. It does reflect a lot of our personalities. It reflects a lot of our attachment styles. It reflects a lot of just how we do life and how we approach food. Well, it's so interesting. I have been reflecting on, on my personal tendencies, which I imagine everybody is as we're hearing you like just describe these things, Emily. And I think I, I've noticed that just day-to-day -day living, I feel a pull, a really strong pull to do, to accomplish, to achieve. And not to mention that I can just see most of the time around me, all of the to-do lists, all of the things that aren't happening that need to happen. And I notice somewhere in there, and I, I can't really explain it, but somewhere in there, I start to miss the checking in that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I, I wouldn't have had words to describe that. And yeah. so then I start to say, well, let's just sit down. I've, so I've had to have an ongoing goal in the back of my mind, sit down to eat. But an interesting thing that I notice is that when I, when I find myself too harried and I do begin sitting down to eat, I will start to cry. <laughs> it's like I give myself a pause and all of the things start to come up. But if I practice that regularly, then I get into a rhythm. Things are getting backed no, up. No, right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I love that you shared that. I think so many people listening can relate to that. And I know my clients would relate to that because that's a lot of why they avoid eating. <laughs> because as yeah. soon as you start doing something mm. as personal as putting something in your mouth, you do connect with yourself pretty easily. And then, yeah, you do have a lot of awareness of feelings and thoughts and all the things that maybe you've been easy, it's have been easier to avoid up until that point. Yes. And so it can be kind of, I think, a learned behavior to just avoid doing that. I don't like how that felt. That felt really uncomfortable. I just need to stay busy and avoid that. So I really like that you pointed that out. And maybe I would say put into words what probably a lot of people may not even realize is happening for them. But it is, it's a really vulnerable thing to eat, right? To put food in our mouth. That's, I think, why so many yeah. people have so many feelings about food and opinions about food and it's a really vulnerable thing to be, you know, eating and having food preferences and liking something or definitely feeling pleasure from the food that you're eating. 
it's a really vulnerable place to be. And as a result of that, things can really start to to pile up there for sure. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I wouldn't have even been able to identify that. The, the connection is so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Something I will say, I want anyone listening to know I'm in the trenches with you. I mean, we're busy, right? We have kids and we work and we have other responsibilities in the community or church or whatever it is. And I think it's really important to take maybe take a minute here and recognize that we all have a lot of things that we want to accomplish in a day, right? And things that are meaningful to us and things we've committed to. And what I like to think about with clients is what I what I really want to do and what I'd encourage anyone to think about is we're just skill building here, right? How do we build skills for self-care? And so, you know, going kind of coming back to the flexible structure, I see that as a great tool for skill building in that. For example, if I were to eat breakfast, use my earlier example, at 8 o'clock and I knew I was going to be gone at 11, I would pack something to take with me. That's a skill, right? That's self-care. It doesn't mean that I'm home all the time, necessarily always plating things or always sitting down to eat, although I love when that can happen and I love the intention of hearing from you and making that happen. But realistically, is that always going to happen? No, but that doesn't mean we can't meet our needs. We can anticipate that ahead. And I do think anticipating our needs ahead of time is one of the skills that we need to build for competent eating and to be able to take care of ourselves with food. So thinking about what's for dinner before dinner happens, making sure we have snacks on hand, maybe just always in our bag. So we're always prepared with them when we're not home. We have groceries and you can involve your kids in this. I I really don't think moms should be the the one only in charge of everyone's food. Man, talk about overwhelm, right? Ideally, kids are involved in that planning and preparing and they're ideally building skills right along with you and anticipating their needs, depending on age and whatever. But yeah, we're skill building here. And it doesn't mean that we can't have other things going on in our life to take care of ourselves with food. We're, We're learning how to take care of ourselves with food, even in the middle of busy lives. Well, and I want to say that that learning this skill in this way is a bridge to healthier ways of showing up in other areas of our lives, that it's a great place to start. Yeah. Practicing the intentionality, practicing the skills, like you're saying, Emily, like it's something that like it brings us back to have to try it again a different way. And we can be gentle with ourselves with it. I mean, that's one of the things you were the first person to introduce me to intuitive eating in my own kitchen, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe you remember. Those are good I, memories. Yes, I do remember. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I had just finished a, uh, a really intense yeast cleanse oh, and yeah. was trying to come back to introducing more foods. And I remember Emily like going immediately to our cupboards like and opening our cupboards up. Yeah. And I was like terrified <laughs> that she was going to see the Oreos and she saw them. <laughs> <laughs> and do you remember what you said? You, maybe you do, but I, 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 don't, I, you I pulled, don't. You don't need to remind me. Well, because I'd never had anybody respond to it this way. Because in my in my home, food like this was sort of, you know, something you hid or shameful or it was mm-hmm. like, it had, it was, had energy, it was loaded, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh no, she's going to find the forbidden food. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you grabbed the Oreos and you said, oh my gosh, I love Oreos. <laughs> and I was not expecting a registered dietitian <laughs> to respond that way. But again, it was it was just this opening up to intuitive eating, this idea of this whole concept of intuitive eating, which of course we can spend a whole podcast just on that and maybe we should, but the idea that we can start to relate to food differently and, and learn yeah. new ways of thinking about and relating to ourselves and food. And this is all, like you said, skill building and it's so gentle and we have mm. 
dozens of opportunities in a day or in a week to practice relating differently to it. And then, like you said, it extends into other areas of our lives because the way we show up in one will be the way we show up everywhere, like you said, it's the way we do life. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the most rewarding things about helping people with food. And I'm glad that you get it, right? Like you have seen this or maybe even experienced it for yourself. It is just indescribable. It's just a natural phenomenon when someone practices more intention and awareness with food that naturally leaks over to other areas of their life. But I also think that they get how to best describe this. I I 100% believe that food can be a teacher because like I used the word vulnerable before, because it's such a vulnerable thing to be with food, right? And to have food preferences. So bringing in the Oreos here, right? I myself have not had the most healthy relationship with food my whole life. And so I'm glad I said that. (laughs) I'm so glad that that was my response to you when I saw those Oreos. And because I worked hard to get there, right? I have done the same Mm. skill building that I'm asking anyone else to do. And what I have found personally, I'll speak personally for a minute. What I have found personally is by saying things like, I love Oreos. I actually act in healthier ways around Oreos. Because the shame is no longer there with Oreos or whatever other other food is, right? I actually have a better chance of moderating my food experiences or my eating experiences with Oreos. So the more that we can just embrace our humanness with food, our vulnerability, our likes and our dislikes and our preferences and the fact that it's, food is pleasurable and that's satisfying to us. The more we can really embrace that that's what food does for us and that that's what food can give us, I think that we are naturally able to say, you know what, I like this and this and this, or I don't like this and this and this in other areas of our life. And so in the culture that we live in, I mean, you're, you're a part of it too. You've probably heard about food addiction and, and you just can't trust yourself with food. And a lot of those kinds of labels and boxes that we put ourselves in with food really do nothing to help us behave in new and different ways with food or to relate to food in new and different ways. And so we could probably do a whole podcast episode of just on food addiction, right? Oh, yeah. Um, it pits you against food. Like food is now your nemesis. Yeah. And you've got to control it. You've got to like put mm-hmm. it in its place, which yeah, is not a relationship. No. Yeah, it's like more transactional, right? Like I do this and you do this, yeah. And since I brought it up from a research standpoint, it actually is jury still out. We Food addiction, the label food addiction is actually pretty inconclusive. And so I think people throw that label around much too easily and casually in describing their behaviors with food or their relationship with food. It's not to say that someone might not feel addicted, right? So a lot of the maybe preoccupations or obsessions or maybe even feeling dependent on it in some way. It's not to say that they couldn't feel those things towards food, but the intervention there is not abstinence. It's actually just learning new skills, learning new ways of relating to food. And so the more that we can really embrace that vulnerability and that like and the pleasure and all the things that food does for us, And the true like reward system, I mean, like that's how our brains work with food. It's rewarding to our brain to be eating. Otherwise, we wouldn't go back multiple times a day and get our needs met with food. We need to have that positive reinforcement in our brains to take care of ourselves with food. So it's very normal and natural to feel a love and enjoyment of food. And so anyone listening, if nothing else, take that away from here and just 
And just see how different that lands for you when you're not in the, in the mode of judging and criticizing or feeling ashamed about food or about your food behaviors even or how you relate to food. Get curious about it. Start embracing how you feel. And you might find it's easier to find that middle ground with food like we talked about. Yeah, that's so true. And when I read Intuitive Eating, I, I read that book a number of years ago. And after I read it, or as I was reading it, I thought, oh my gosh, they should write a book like this around pornography or sex or sex. because mm. this is not a drive we can shut off. And when we try and do that and we, we really kind of de-self or disconnect from ourselves as a way to manage something that maybe has caused problems for us or in our relationships, we really increase our suffering. And yeah. so, like you said, abstinence from food is, is death, literal death. <laughs> But abstinence from, you know, our, our emotions or our sexuality or those kinds of things as well, I think does kill a part of us that I don't think is, needs to be shut down like that. I think it's, it's really a, an integral part of how we interface in not only romantic relationships, but even just with ourselves and our energy. And there's so much that could be said about that. And so I love this whole idea of learning how to relate to something that keeps coming back. Mm -hmm. that that wants to get our attention that that needs us to pay attention to it that is trying to help us and i i agree that there's so many ways that nobody's ever taught us how to do that or taught us how to nurture that or even yeah. see it or relate to it or have words i mean i'm i'm hearing words today talking to you emily that are helping me organize my own experience around food and i've read a lot about this yeah you know it's just really really so important yeah yeah and that we we can treat it like skill building yeah like it's not I like how you you referenced that that it's not necessarily good food itself is not necessarily good or bad but that we can just approach food as what it is and then begin to just be mindful about how we're interacting with it and intentional in mm -hmm. terms of times and spaces and just begin teaching ourselves how or just allowing ourselves to build a relationship with it and pay attention enough to decide maybe at one point, yeah, I, I ate too much and I feel yucky. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to change that part of the relationship or just mm -hmm. let it be a constant learning skill building experience. That is so gentle. It's, mm -hmm. inv it's inviting because like, like you said, both of you, we will just have an opportunity to face it. <laughs> Again. In a few hours. Again. Yeah, in a few hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Jody, I actually really love that you brought that dynamic into it and taking feedback and learning, right? Because that is inherent in skill building. We're going to make mistakes, right? Or, mm -hmm. And I'm like going to use air quotes around mistakes. We're, it's yeah. going to be a learning process in terms of what works for us, especially if we're new to approaching food in, in this way, right? And so... Mm -hmm. Really what we want to focus on is just our lived experience with food. And I know that a lot of people are hopefully coming from a registered dietitian that will have a little bit more impact because I know that there's a lot of people out there that feel like that could be maybe irresponsible, right? Like I, I can't mm. think that Oreos are on the same level as carrots. Like I, I can't, I can't think <laughs> that there's no good or bad foods, right? This is irresponsible, but really. The, the invitation here is just to start to focus more on your behaviors around food rather than the food itself, because you have more ownership of that. Like, how do I want to behave? How do I want to be with food? Did this work for me or not? Did I, did I like how I felt after I finished that or did I not? Did yeah. this give right. me the energy I needed for the rest of the morning or did it not? 
So you're just, it really is an invitation to, I know, just lay down the labels. I know that's hard. Get rid of the good or bad labels. Don't make it a really about the food and more about your experience with the food. It being a learning process, you taking feedback from your experiences and adjusting from there. And you're going to get a lot farther, a lot faster than following a list of do eat this and don't eat that. Right. Which is why diets don't, we know, right, research, we know that diets fail 90 plus percent of the time, maybe higher because of this, right? Because it disconnects Uh us from that relationship to ourselves. We're just following a, a prescription. And we're looking, we're categorizing foods and we're, we're creating bad guys and good guys and ignoring signals completely because we're mm-hmm. just focused on content versus process, right? Yeah, it's very oh, yeah. extrinsic, right? Mm-hmm. It's very like, I'm just following something outside of me. I'm not really paying attention to how I feel necessarily or what I need. And, you know, I think, you know, I love that you've used the word gentle a few times because that's exactly what this should feel like. Yeah. And you brought up intuitive eating, Jeff. And, and one of the principles of intuitive eating is gentle nutrition. So we're not ignoring nutrition in this approach mm-hmm. of behaviors, right? We, we definitely want it to feel gentle. And I would actually say that gentle nutrition is built into that flexible structure. We are encouraging three to five food groups at meals for a reason. Ideally, there's variety at that mill, ideally, you're not just eating cake for breakfast. Ideally, you're not just eating carrots for lunch. Ideally, there's a combination of food groups and a combination of nutrition. Because actually, the biggest indicator of someone getting their nutrition needs met is variety. When we're, mm. and to an extent, like don't get, you don't need to get crazy with this. You're not, I realize that most people are eating similar breakfasts or similar lunches, sure. right? And that we rotate through those. But diets that are very restrictive really cut out foods or cut out food groups, even whole food groups. And then we're, we're left with, we run the risk of just not getting our nutrition needs met very well versus an all foods fit mentality where we're really ideally inclusive of a variety of foods and being intentional about building meals and snacks that really are nourishing and satisfying that incorporate food groups in a way that we're getting our nutrition needs met that we're having carbs and proteins and fats and fibers and all of these different food groups too. And hopefully it's colorful and hopefully it's there's satisfying foods along with it. And it's not prescriptive. That flexible structure definitely isn't prescriptive, but there is some gentleness there in guiding food decisions and building intention about around creating a meal and snack that truly would be nourishing and satisfying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's amazing how with just such a simple guide of uh, having an understanding of how long a meal can last and how snacks can fit in that that just even to try to put in place, you know, even somewhat of a structure that like you said has some flexibility that doesn't have to be rigid but just can allow us to begin creating awareness in our bodies of how food works and how getting a a breakfast that looks a certain way that we enjoy can last us a certain amount of time and then we can be ready to refuel and enjoy the food at that point and then have the freedom to not think about the food in the meantime. Like just in that very simple layout, there's so much there. Mm -hmm. That's the hope that it gives you kind of an anchor, some containment to kind of build off of, experiment with. And ultimately, ideally have positive experiences with food. Like there can be some positive feedback in, you know what? I had more energy today. I had more clarity in thinking. 
I didn't lose my temper as easily. I didn't get as irritable. My digestion was improved. I noticed my blood sugar was more stable. I mean, physiologically, Mm -hmm. mentally, emotionally, we're going to feel more stable when food is predictable and stable. When food is all over the place and haphazard and chaotic and unpredictable, that's a lot of how our food is, our day is going to go. And in large part, that's because of how we need food regularly and also the opportunity that food gives us to create some structure in our day as well, like we talked about. And so ideally, someone taking that flexible structure starts to have those positive experiences and to the point of it being more intrinsically motivated then. Like, oh, this is working for me. I see these benefits bigger than just checking boxes on my diet that I did this thing. I'm actually really experiencing the benefits of taking care of myself. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love love how it's wrapped into a Mm self-care outcome so that at the end we feel nourished and nurtured Mm -hmm. and like you said, stable and Mm -hmm. that life can feel a little bit more predictable, even though there's a lot of things we can't control. This is an area that we can take care of and keep, like you said, skill building and and create some consistency and stability in our own lives where everything might feel Mm -hmm. at times or maybe just in general, more unpredictable. If it's okay, I'd like to talk about some specific applications, Emily. Sure. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our audience are women, especially who have been betrayed in an intimate relationship, Mm -hmm. Uh, women that have been betrayed through infidelity or pornography, some sort of sexual betrayal, and it throws their life into a post-traumatic stress disorder type presentation where there's oftentimes they don't feel like eating or their sleep is totally disrupted or they feel like every day is just a battle to not be overwhelmed and triggered and shut down. And so. I know a lot of the questions I'll ask them center around taking care of their physical needs, but this can also then induce a lot of shame around, I'm feeding my kids crackers and I'm not eating. And you know, I basically have gone offline with food because I'm just trying to survive and figure out my next move. What could you say to a woman in trauma who perhaps maybe was taking care of herself with food prior to a discovery and now finds herself avoiding food or overeating or trying to you know, manage her life mm-hmm. and get the requisite nutrition and strength that she needs to make good decisions and think through what she wants to do? That's such a great question and makes a lot of sense, right? So in my work with disordered eating, many clients have trauma histories of some sort. And so trauma makes food so much more complex, especially if it's wrapped up with some body image issues as well. If that's a result of of some of that trauma, and so really just wanting to like normalize that and understand that and say, "Gosh, that makes so much sense why you would feel that way and really validate that that's a thing. I think in my experience, someone needs some small goals, right? So maybe this the entirety of the flexible structure all day feels like too much, and it sure. would for someone yeah. who's trying to navigate so many. Like just probably the day feels like landmines all over the place, maybe easily triggered. Mm. There's lots going on. She's got kids to take care of in the middle of that. Yeah, of course that would feel overwhelming in its entirety. Like I've got to eat all these different times all day. That's so much Mm -hmm. to manage. So I would say smaller goals would be ideal. So maybe take one Miller snack each day where you could create this, you know, balanced meal, three to five food groups or 
a couple of food groups for a snack, put it on a plate, sit down and try to eat it mindfully. And just try one meal or snack a day at first and let that build on itself. Let it evolve as slowly or as quickly as it does. You don't need to push it. Uh, what we, I know you can speak better to this than I can, but I would say that you don't rush healing. You don't rush the trauma healing. You, right. you meet yourself where you're at and you mm-hmm. are compassionate with yourself. That's definitely true of someone with an eating disorder. There's a lot to work through when there's issues with food or otherwise, right? And so you meet yourself where you're at, but also know that what you're doing currently isn't working for you. So how can you meet yourself where you're at with goals, small achievable goals of changing behaviors or changing things or aspects of your day that would better serve you? So maybe break it down, make it a little That's small. a great, yeah, that's a great place to start. And I love that you said a meal or a snack, Sure. right? And I mm-hmm. mean, it's like giving people options instead of just make sure your meals and your snacks <laughs> or, you know, it's just so nice that there can be this permission to say, Hey, if you just got emotionally run over in your marriage and all you can do is mindfully eat one little snack a day that just is a little you time that allows you to like breathe for a minute, really nourish that and relish that, enjoy that and Mm -hmm. let yourself feel for a minute. And it might bring up some tears like you talked about, Jody, if you're having to pause and feed Mm -hmm. yourself. But I, I do really appreciate that permission, Emily. I think it's very sensible. Well, and and I have had some very real lived experience that has proven just that. When earlier, I, I'm really interested in nutrition. I find it very fascinating. And I have studied it for years and years. And when my family was young, my kids were young, I had the affectionate nickname of the food Nazi. <laughs> because I, I would read so much and it would dial up so much anxiety in me about Mm. what foods are okay and what aren't okay and what am I putting into my children's bodies and my bodies. And it did for me become a form of control when in my life there were so many other things that were out of control. But there were some times that I felt a desire to make some improvements but the idea was so overwhelming. And the only thing I could come up with, for for example, was I liked brown rice. I felt like it was a, a better choice. My family didn't like it. And so I I feel like in one of the, the healthier moments that I had around it, I just thought, maybe if I mix it, <laughs> maybe if I start and I mix a little brown rice with the regular rice, let's see where that goes. And it was a baby step. Mm-hmm. But that it was okay. Everybody was okay with that. And we did that probably for weeks and months. And then at some point, somewhere in there, we transitioned all the way to brown rice. And it was very small. And we went the distance. And, you know, we've made a number of changes since then, even, but but mm-hmm. it was manageable. It was itty bitty. And it I felt like it was a choice I could make that didn't come with any stress or anxiety. And so that I know that that is very, that can be very successful is just start to start with something small that doesn't come with a lot of baggage, Mm -hmm. whatever the step is. Mm -hmm. And then it can just build. It can very slowly build over time and become incorporated into the, this skill of having a healthier relationship with food. Like a real long game that's so peaceful yeah. instead mm-hmm. of just doing these violent food changes yeah. or, or Beating rigid. Yeah. Up or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We need that. Yeah. 
I love that example. And I think that it's definitely worth recognizing like there's no, there's no rush. I mean, there's, there's people in their forties and fifties and sixties that are still learning skills around food and wherever you're at older, younger than that, there's no rush. And ultimately you will get further faster and more sustainably (laughs) if you do what Jody's described here, you know, really just have one thing that feels, I can do that. And then it will evolve from there. Right. Mm -hmm. And it actually is a bigger payoff, right? Than the quick, I'm going to hurry and do this, but then I'm back to score one because I didn't really build any skills around it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's great. And I'm guessing that the, that the same, the same counsel or advice that, you know, you're talking about for a betrayed person, if, if somebody is dealing with, again, on the flip side, that the person who maybe is struggling with a compulsive sexual behavior or their own chaos and attachment issues and betrayals that they're committing that are hurting their relationships. Some people have addictions and so on. I'm guessing that the same counsel and, and suggestions would apply for them as well to slow down and, and identify where they can start making some adjustments with this and, and really approach it from that very gentle and mindful way of making some small changes. Right. And, you know, if welcome to being human, none of us can handle more (laughs) than one or two or three goals at the most anyway. Right. I I think that, and then of course, (laughs) trauma on top of that's going to impact it and any other, any other struggles or adversity any of us are facing. I just think sometimes we expect too much of ourselves when it comes to behavior change, especially around food. Yep. And we just probably need to have more realistic expectations of what we're really capable of, of changing all at once. Mm-hmm. But the beautiful thing about changes is they're kind of exponential. Like they work in exponential ways. Like you make one change and it kind of builds on each other. It's not like you're, it's indescribable. I think you kind of have to experience it and probably any of you have listening, right? Because you're human like me. You make a change and there's an exponential benefit to that change. You find it easier than to make other Mm -hmm. changes. Your confidence grows. You feel more capable. You again, Mm -hmm. have this positive feedback of like, this is working for me and I want to keep going. And, and then six months you, you look back and you think, oh my gosh, I am in a really different place. What if I kept going with this? Where could I be in another six months? Right. And so I think for any of us, we probably want to take a, a step at a time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not a, not and really just resist the, the the tendency to allow food to become a club that mm. just you know our our behaviors our interactions around food to become another reason to hate ourselves yeah. or to yeah, give up feel good enough mm-hmm. yeah to sort of believe that we're doing life wrong yeah. not that there can't be some feedback in there for us about how we feel and what we want to adjust but in terms of it being the final judgment mm-hmm. it's just not necessary we really can be more kind and and gentle with ourselves and each other around this. Yeah. And I think that that brings up, you know, just the recognition that we live in a culture that kind of does perpetuate that judgment and the Mm -hmm. feeling of, I need to hurry up and do that. I need to hurry up and get healthy. I need to hurry up and do this. And if I'm not doing it this way, I'm not doing it right. Or, and so you really have to push back against that pressure it's real. Eat a certain way, to look a certain mm-hmm. way, to do it a certain way. You really have to push back against that pressure. And and maybe part of that is like watching your social media feeds or the conversations you're having and how you talk about this stuff with people or even the conversations you allow to happen 
as you're yeah, trying boundaries to... with family members. Exactly. So I think it is hard. I mean, I think that's just to validate that it's really hard mm-hmm. to think differently about this stuff because of all of the the rules around food that are around us. You know? Yeah, there are so many trap doors, you know, around, like you said, just stuff that just surrounds us that can really plummet us into a into a dark place around this topic and leave us mm-hmm. feeling pretty beat up and overwhelmed and and just like making adjustments in our our behaviors around food or food choices and and food experiences there can also be those same adjustments with the types of conversations we're willing to engage in or things we take in mm-hmm. it's all an ongoing curation a process of pruning and checking adjusting but the good news is is that we we can do a lot about it right yeah you know, just we're not... step a step at a time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely yeah wow emily yeah. Do you want to just become a permanent third co-host with us? Because I'm really enjoying this. I would this. love that. That's <laughs> the biggest compliment from you two. That's so nice. <laughs> this is a great well, conversation. Anyway, and we'd love is, to have you back. Yeah. 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 There are There's, some really great places we could go. Because I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions yeah. from listeners around mm-hmm. application and things like that. And so we'll, we might touch base with you again. Because this, this is an area that I think all of us relate to. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Growing up, like you said, I, I love at the beginning how you just said it really just kind of hit me in the chest. I just thought, oh my goodness, like that is so true about it. Like just, we'll just talk about the the very basic infant nursing on their on their mother, mm-hmm. and how that's dealt with in terms of them wanting more food, being forced to eat more, or being d- deprived. It's incredible how much programming around food before we're even verbal starts yeah. happening. And yeah. so this mm-hmm. is, this is our story. This is everyone's story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And for us to have language around it and skills and permission, it's very nurturing to me to talk about it and to know that there's a lot we can do with it and then how it extends and impacts our parenting and our relationships and mm-hmm. our work and how we show up in the world. Mm-hmm. It's just, just infinitely interesting to me. Oh yeah. 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 It's fantastic. Well, me too. So anytime. Happy to. Yeah. Great. Great. Yeah. <laughs> great. great. We definitely will. Fantastic. Thank you so much for yeah all that you've shared. Yep. Thank you. We'll definitely have you back. Appreciate you. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks guys. Good to see you. Thanks Emily. You okay. too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.